We are standing at the east front of the main house. So we are up on top of a hill. Um, Monticello means little mountain in Italian. And we are about a couple hundred feet above the city of Charlottesville, off to our right. And the elevation makes us a little bit cooler in the hot summer, on hot summer days, probably a little bit colder on cold winter days. And it gives a, a sense of perspective over the landscape. When Thomas Jefferson was deciding where to build his home in Virginia, he wanted somewhere with a vista and somewhere he could be on his own. He got that at Monticello. It's got the most amazing view over the Blue Ridge Mountains. Today, the landscape is thickly wooded, but in Jefferson's time, he would have looked out over fields worked by slaves growing tobacco and wheat. Monticello was a working plantation. Emily Johnson is an associate curator at Monticello and our guide when we visit. We follow her up the stairs into the high-ceilinged entrance hall. It's decorated with Native American tools, weapons and clothing, as well as antique maps, mineral samples, antlers, horns and bones of extinct animals. Also, some fossils. Jefferson was an eager and avid explorer of natural history. So all of these things, things that refer to the expansion of the United States, the purchase of Louisiana, scientific inquiry, are all included in this room. Jefferson was a diplomat, architect, inventor, man of letters, as well as the third president of the United States. But his reputation has risen and fallen over time, and today Monticello strives to reflect the moral ambiguity of his legacy. It is sort of a physical embodiment of the kind of very complex person that that he was. So you have this person situated on a mountain looking down on all around him and living in the midst of nature and thinking these great thoughts, but it was also a, a slave plantation. I'm Adam Smith, and this is The Last Best Hope, the podcast that looks at America from the outside in. Thomas Jefferson called slavery a moral depravity and a hideous blot that presented the greatest threat to the survival of the new republic. Yet for all his unquenchable curiosity and exquisite reasoning, he owned 607 enslaved men, women and children during his lifetime. He freed only two while he was alive and five in his will. A slave-holding republic founded on claims of liberty and equality. This is what the Pulitzer Prize winner Annette Gordon-Reed has called the American Dilemma. Annette is the Carl M. Loeb Professor at Harvard University, the author of many books, including the Pulitzer Prize winning The Hemingses of Monticello and, most recently, of On Juneteenth. In this week's episode, we'll be exploring with Annette the implications of that unavoidable tension at the American founding. And we'll be visiting Jefferson's home at Monticello, a building which is, in many ways, an expression of Jefferson's personality. It's where the best things happen and the worst things happen. I mean, the person who created the Declaration of Independence and slavery, right there, the American dilemma, and... A mix, a multiracial Americans, 
people not just in the sense that they're black people living with white people, but they're people who are black and white at the same time, uh, all in this one place. And you can tell the story of America through it. It's, it's a vehicle for talking about our origin story and the complexity of our origin story. So we are moving from the very tall entrance hall. The ceiling height is about 18 feet in here. And we're going through a passage into Jefferson's private suite. So this is the part of the house that Jefferson primarily inhabited. So please follow me. If you ask the visitors queuing up to join the tour what words come to mind when they think of Thomas Jefferson, most say the Declaration of Independence. A copy of it hangs in a frame on the wall in his library. Jefferson kept his rough draft, which is the draft in his handwriting that has all the scribbles and the markouts. He kept that with him for his whole life. The original is now um, at the Library of Congress. But in the 18... In about 1818, Americans started printing copies of the Declaration to revive interest in the revolutionary movement. And so this document is actually one of those that Jefferson received from an early printer in 1818. Although Jefferson's draft went through a process of revision by his fellow committee members, Jefferson is considered the primary author of America's Declaration of Independence from the British Empire, the nation's founding moment. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another. The Declaration provides clear and emphatic statements supporting self-government and individual rights. In 1963, in his famous I Have a Dream speech, Martin Luther King was able to claim these words were a promissory note for African Americans. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, you have written, you have talked very eloquently and written about the American dilemma, I mean, this central tension that the man who said that all, uh, that all men are created equal was the owner of slaves. And of course, he was far, far from the only slaveholder in that generation who waged uh, a war against the British and created this new nation. I mean, how does it, how should it change our understanding of that text, or at least that first paragraph of that of that text, to know that Jefferson was an owner of human beings? Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly highlights the complexity of people, of human beings, Because I do believe that Jefferson thought that slavery was wrong, you know, but we're in a situation, human beings are very often in situations where we know something is, we know what the right thing is to do, but we don't do it because we don't have the strength to do it. We don't see how, uh, and you know, it's there, I, I think it's more about thinking about him rather than the words, because I think I believe the words are true in the sense that he meant them. And I think he, when he was challenged on this, you know, what about black people? Um, He said he believed it applied to them as well. It's not about everybody has equal talent. 
everybody can do the same things. It's that there's a humanity, there's a common humanity that's involved there. But still, you wonder, how can you think that and do the things that you're doing? And in his situation, he could have done something about it. He could have freed the people whom he enslaved. But he thought that individually freeing slave people would make the person feel good, the sort of liberal thing to do, but it wouldn't change the society overall. Now, if he thought everybody should, that there should be some legislative solution to all of this. Now, it's highly unlikely that Virginians were going to vote to end slavery in the 18th century or the early 19th century. And in the end, slavery ended the way it ended in the United States in a bloody war, which he would never have championed. So I guess you should think about what those words mean to you individually. And the words have meaning whether you think he really believed them or not. <laughs> this is, and he, you know, by the end of his life, he had come to understand what that document meant. You know, it's originally about breaking away from Great Britain and explaining to the world why they were doing it and that they were going to take their place among the nations of the earth and all of that with the grievances. But by the time of his death, 50 years after this was signed on the 50th anniversary of it, um, a few weeks before that, he writes to Roger Waitman and he talks about the declaration. And then he says it applied to, I'm paraphrasing him essentially, but it applied to some. One day it would apply to the world. Um, so he had come to understand that, that that part of his legacy, and that's what he wanted on his tombstone. And the declaration was one of the, the accomplishments. He claimed that for himself because he had come to understand what it meant in the world. It's the central text from which everything else flows then. What you're, what yes. you're saying, if I'm understanding you correctly, yes, is that mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. that, that is the, the core of what makes America America, is that claim to equality. Mm-hmm. The claim to equality and that document, that document that says we were part of the British Empire, we followed their laws, now it's, it's, a, it's considered the foundational document of American law, and which is the a country that sees itself as uh, living according to the rule of law, but also the ethos that you're referring to here uh, about equality. So one way of thinking about the Declaration of Independence, as you've just articulated it there, is that it is a promise ever to be worked towards. Then The notion that it will ever be attained is perhaps illusory, but that doesn't mean you can't work towards it. There was there were darker moments for more pessimistic moments for Jefferson as well though weren't there yeah. uh, and especially in relation to this central question of race so yeah. he also yeah. talked about his assumption that if there were to be any solution in inverted commas to the problem of mm-hmm. race relations in the new nation that he'd done so much to create it could only be through complete racial separation in some form mm-hmm. and he also on a slightly different register talked about at the time of the Missouri crisis in 1820 of course his famous metaphor of slavery as being like a wolf held by the ears with mm-hmm. the point mm-hmm. being that you you dare not let it go so mm-hmm. you may not want to be there you don't want to be you don't want to be there but you mm-hmm. can't you can't let it go either mm-hmm. so what about that kind of darker, more pessimistic mm-hmm. Jefferson? It's pessimistic to us because we've accepted the idea that this could be a multiracial society. Jefferson 
didn't think that that was the case because he says it in notes. He basically says blacks will never forget what we did to them. We'll never give up our prejudices. There can't be generalized assimilation. And so how can you have a people who can't marry each other? How can you be citizens who love a country and love a community if you can't make families? That's fa- nations are made up of families. And he couldn't think of a Republican society with first and second class citizens and that that, that that could work. And that's essentially what we've had even after emancipation, after the Civil War amendments. We embarked upon a, a, a story of a nation with first and second class citizens. And we have accepted the idea that you can be a citizen, but then you have to fight for your rights. And that that was not in his contemplation. It's either this or that. So Jefferson couldn't imagine a society in which black people and white people lived harmoniously in conditions of legal equality. Like most Americans of the founding generation, Jefferson naturalized white racial supremacy. He wrote about the inferiority of black people in body and mind. He worried that to emancipate them would be like abandoning children. But what of the seven people that Jefferson did free? Well, all of them were closely related to one woman, Sally Hemings, a seamstress here at Monticello and the mother of six of Jefferson's children. So we are walking, we are coming out of the east front. We're going down about five steps and we're going to walk around to the side of of the house, the south side of the house. And this is where you'll find the kitchen, uh, some dwelling rooms for enslaved people, the smokehouse, all of those essential functions that kept the Monticello house going. To get to what's thought to be Sally's room, you need to leave the main house and walk along a colonnaded pathway on the south wing. The room is very small. It is about 12 feet by by 13 feet. Um, It's very low. It's seven feet, four inches tall. You know, a, a tall person in this country is six foot two. There are basketball players who are taller than the height of the ceiling in Sally Hemings, in the slave dwellings here in Sally Hemings' room. It's dark and it's set into the earth. And so while the temperature is modulated because it is set into the earth, it's also, it's damp. Sally Hemings was the daughter of a man named John Wales, who was born in Lancaster in England, who'd been brought over as a servant boy by a person who thought that he was talented and uh, gave him an education. So he becomes a lawyer and a slave trader and married three times, all three wives died. And then he took a woman named Elizabeth Hemings as his concubine. That is the word their grandchild used to describe the situation. And they have six children, and the youngest is Sally. John Wales has a daughter, a white daughter, with one of his wives, Martha, who marries Thomas Jefferson. And so because of the laws of property and so forth, he comes into control of this family. And when when John Wales dies, he inherits the Hemings family and 135 other enslaved people. And she comes to Monticello as a three-year-old and she lives there 
and becomes a companion to Jefferson's daughters and who are her nieces. When Jefferson goes to Paris, Sally Hemings comes to Paris as the companion to Jefferson's younger daughter. And while there, she becomes his concubine. Because she's in France, doesn't want to come France where she believes she's free, and she had reason to believe that, and Jefferson believed it. She doesn't want to come back home when he's ready to come back. And so he promises her that if he comes back, she will live a good life at Monticello. Any children they have will be free, and she comes back. And essentially, that's what happens. As Sally Hemings' mother's uh, story indicates, this this uh, was hardly a unique occurrence in the slaveholding South, was it, for there to be sexual relations between white masters and enslaved women. Um, you use the word there, um, drawing on Sally Hemings' son, uh, concubine. Rape victim would be another term to use mm-hmm. to use to mm-hmm. describe her, but the relate the relationship went on for thirty eight years. years. And, um, mm-hmm. um, how would you, as someone who studied this and thought about this so carefully, I mean, what is your sense of the nature of the? Given the obvious power imbalance oh, yeah. between a wealthy mm-hmm. white old man, mm-hmm. older man, and this young woman, mm-hmm. how would you? How is? How do you read that relationship? Well, it's tough to read it, and some people, for some people, it's easy. The reason it's tough for me is because when this started, she's in a place where she had the right to be free. She's there with her brother, who's eight years older. In Paris, Jefferson was paying them wages. Once she comes back to Virginia, she is totally under his control. You know, there's no question about that. But she comes back and he does what he said he was going to do. So I just kind of think of what what was a woman's life at that time other than being attached to a man in some fashion and hope that he was going to treat her okay. I mean, she's not going off to law school. She's not going off to a career or anything like that. This is what she thought was a way of creating a life for herself. So I try to think about it in terms of what she wanted. She made a a deal that worked for her because in the end, that's what it is. Her children are free 30, 40 years before the rest of African-Americans, the bulk of African-Americans were freed after the Civil War. And they go off, and three of them go off into whiteness. Uh, two of them, we don't really know their whereabouts, but they married people who were well off and lived. They left all of this stuff behind. You know, we think about what we would do in those circumstances, but I try to, to adhere closely to her vision of herself, what you can get from what she told about her life. And that's not just I, I was a sex slave. I mean, that, that isn't the impression that you get from her. And then when he dies, she takes some stuff from him and keeps them, oh, some glasses, other heirloom, other things to give to her children as heirlooms because I think she thought she had achieved something. And that, that's hard for us to to see, but people being in these circumstances trying to do the best they can for themselves. And, you know, it worked in a way for her. 
1824, at the age of 24, Sally and Jefferson's son, Beverly, ran away from Monticello and wasn't pursued. His sister Harriet joined him the same year. Two years later, in 1826, when Jefferson died, his other children were freed by his will. Sally herself was withheld from auction and was informally freed by Jefferson's daughter Martha, Sally's niece. For decades, the truth of Sally and Jefferson's relationship was dismissed or debated. But not anymore, in large part thanks to Annette Gordon-Reed's astonishing book, The Hemingses of Monticello. Today, you can do the Hemings family tour at Monticello. It's also launched an app, Slavery at Monticello, and is restoring Mulberry Row, the principal plantation street that was the centre of life for black people at Monticello. We are walking down the, the kitchen path. We've, we've, we've moved down the hill. Whenever, you, whenever you're at Monticello, if you're not at the Great House, you're slightly sliding down the hill. And some of our descendants say that their ancestors slid all the way down the mountain and settled in communities that surround uh, Monticello at the bottom. But here we are on, on Mulberry Row. This is really the, the hub of the 5,000-acre plantation. A colleague of mine who's a descendant of the enslaved community and of Jefferson, she says that when she's on Mulberry Row, she hears laughter. Because along Mulberry Row, we've been doing archaeology along Mulberry Row for, well, for more than 60 years, but really extensively for the last almost 40. And hundreds of thousands of artifacts that really tell about daily life, um, including things like marbles, um, jaw harps, which are little, which are a musical instrument that you can play with your mouth, um, pieces of domino sets. And so this is, these are indications that people, despite all of the horrors of slavery, that people had, were able to, to fashion lives outside of Jefferson, outside of the oversight of an owner or a slave owner or an overseer. And just it, it enlivens the space and it, it enlivens Mulberry Row. I think of Mulberry Row as being active, full of people, carts rumbling down the road, smells. You've got smoke coming from blacksmithing furnaces. You've got smells of people cooking food because people live on Mulberry Row. Smells of horses. Um, you have just busyness. I mean, you're thinking 80 or 90 people living and working here at any given time. It's a, there's a lot of movement. Mulberry Row is full of movement. Whereas the house can seem kind of still, Mulberry Row is about activity. So Sally's children um, were freed. And you mentioned there that at least a couple of them appear to have passed as white. And that is uh, a reminder, I mean, that unsurprisingly, given what we know of Sally's um, parentage and grandparentage, um, she, by the descriptions that we have of her, was was pale skinned mm-hmm. and had straight hair. Yeah. How important is that to this story? If she had not looked pale, mm-hmm. if her children had not been of a complexion where they could have passed as white... Might this have been a different story? Well, sure. It could have been a different story. Um, these children that he has with her were by law white. In Virginia, the law was if you were seven-eighths white, 
you were white. So from his perspective, his children, (laughs) once he freed them, uh, they would become free white citizens of the United States. And, you know, what could be better than that? I mean, from him. So this is sort of an interesting way to think about his his understanding that he he knows that people can become white uh, through mixture. So the question is, well, why wouldn't he just say that's the solution? But he kind of does when he's talking about diffusion. It's sort of the idea of spreading blacks out, you know, in the with the, after the Louisiana territory is purchased and so forth. You know, don't if you spread them out, this eventually will die out. He can't say how. It's like he uses the metaphor of a, of a dark cloud dispersing on a summer's yeah. day. I think doesn't he when he's talking about the, this notion of dispersion? Yeah. And so, certainly yeah. in the back of it, he because he knows. I mean, European visitors came to Monticello, and they would they write these letters to people and say he has people who are whiter than I am, who are slaves. This is, and you know, some French people were really disconcerted by this, uh, by this thought. So he knew, he had to know what the course of something like that would take. It wouldn't just be that they'd all die. They There would be mixture, and those people would eventually become white. But there's no way um, a man in the, in the 18, early 1800s could say that, particularly not a man who was living the way people assumed that he was living. In that unpleasant episode in Charlottesville, that's a real understatement in 2017, where those... <laughs> the late unpleasantness. Ne- yes, exactly. <laughs> when those neo-Nazis um, marched with those burning torches through Charlottesville, they marched to the Jefferson statue, didn't they? Yeah. I, I think there was a sense in which they were trying to associate their very overt, violent white supremacy mm-hmm. With Thomas Jefferson. No question. And then there were people at the statue who were trying to uphold the other side, <laughs> separated from him, uh, the ideals of the Declaration. I mean, so on the one hand, you have people then on the right who are uh, challenging that notion of the American creed as it has, has been conventionally understood over the last two and a half centuries and are asserting, well, a kind of blood and soil, race-based <laughs> notion yeah. of mm-hmm. nationhood. On the other hand, there are conservatives who are concerned that the progressive left are also, in a very different way, rejecting the American creed as, as it has been conventionally understood. So uh, I'm hesitant to bring up the controversial issue of the 1619 <laughs> project um but um the new york times 1619 project at its core it is drawing attention to the way in which white supremacy and race-based capitalism and i guess also patriarchy and have structured american history from the beginning and the beginning 1619 the date they chose because that was the date when unfree African people mm-hmm. were brought to Virginian soil. So the claim being made, obviously, is that 1619 is the real foundation date of the nation mm-hmm. rather than 1776. Um, 
where does that leave your relatively positive view of <laughs> the Declaration positive. of Independence as something in a Lincolnian way that we should be continually striving for, even if it is ultimately unattainable? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I understand the goal of 1619, of focusing on 1619, because it's typically seen as the beginning of slavery. Strange, strangely enough, focusing in on, on Great Britain, because obviously the Spanish were down in Florida with people a hundred years before then. Um, but I think the American dilemma doesn't begin in 1619. I don't think the English people had any qualms or thought that there was any problem with the idea of enslaving Africans. Um, this was something by the time they were doing this, I mean, the Dutch had been, the Portuguese had been there, the Dutch had been there, been doing this, the Spanish had been doing this. So there's no dilemma until somebody says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And then it becomes a problem. So to me, 1776 is important because of those words. That's That's where you have the promise that African-Americans during that time period began to take advantage of filing freedom suits, losing, sometimes winning. Black people have taken this very seriously from the very, very beginning. And so 1619 is important, but it's not important to me, at least, for talking about the American dilemma, because there was no promise made then. There was no statement about creating a new order for the ages or an exceptional country, all those kinds that comes with the break from Great Britain. And that matters to me. If we want to understand the United States founding era, we need to know about Sally Hemings as well as about the Declaration of Independence. We need to see where the enslaved people of Monticello slept as well as where Jefferson read his books. But what are we to make of these clashing images? One line of argument would be to say that it's yet more evidence that the United States has always been structured by patriarchy and white supremacy. In this view, the Founding Fathers' appeals to equality were no more than base hypocrisy. They were predicated on racial exclusion, liberty for some, enslavement for others. A second response would be to say that, in effect, the great words of the Declaration were more historically significant in the long run than the fact that slavery continued for another century. This view would see the Republic as an endless work in progress. Through struggle, the promise of liberty and equality has been gradually extended. But maybe there's a third option, which accepts some truth in all that I've said so far, one that acknowledges that history because it's about people in all their complexity, is unavoidably about paradox and irony. If human beings contain multitudes and inconsistencies, and we know we do, then that must be at least as true of nations. Understanding history requires accepting that messiness. You've been listening to The Last Best Hope a podcast from Oxford's RAI. My name's Adam Smith. The producer is Emily Williams. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Goodbye.